As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. So let our cry come before you, O Lord, and give us understanding according to your word. Let our plea come before you, deliver us according to your word, and our lips will pour forth praise, for you teach us your statutes. Our tongues will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. So hear us and help us now, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me once again in God's word to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We thought of portion, a portion of Titus chapter 3 when we considered Lord's Day 26, and I wanted to uh, return to that portion and to think more with you this evening about Titus chapter 3, verse 8, um, but to give us a sense and remind us of the context um, of, the, of the passage, I want to begin our reading at Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and read through verse 8. Um, You'll find that on page 1272 of many of the Pew Bibles. Uh, Titus is between 2 Timothy and Philemon, one of the pastoral epistles. So Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to begin the reading at verse 1, and we'll focus together this evening on verse 8. But let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, As I said, we considered a portion of this text back when we looked at Lord's Day 26. I'm sure you all remember. It's right on the tip of your tongue what we covered. Uh, But just in case, by way of reminder, uh, we looked at the middle portion of that, really what Paul is referring to here as the trustworthy saying, um, and thought about how God has loved us. Uh, One of the things Paul does here, obviously, is begins with an exhortation to good works and then reminds us of the great love with which God has loved us. Uh, He loved us out of who He is, not out of who we are. Uh, He loved us out of His grace, out of His kindness, out of His goodness, out of His mercy. Uh, He set His love on people who were unlovely and acted to save us. Uh, That God has done everything to save us. He has washed us. He has renewed us by the Spirit of Christ. He has justified us by Christ's blood. He is sanctifying us 
by Christ's Spirit. He makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we thought about that in connection with what it means to be washed with by Christ. And we focused on that middle section. But even when we focused on that middle section, we acknowledged it comes between sort of two bookends. And what are the the two bookends in which this is the middle? Um, It's an exhortation to do good. Right? Paul has tells Titus to exhort God's people to do good things, the good things that are laid out in verses 1 and 2, and he returns to that theme. So at the time we said, even though we're looking at this middle section and what it teaches about our salvation, it comes in this broader context as the motivation for good work. Um, It comes after the exhortation to do good, and then Paul returns to that exhortation at the end of saying all these wonderful things about how God has saved us. Notice how he comes back to the idea of good works in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, what's come before, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we want to return to kind of Paul's main theme, to think about good works, to think about how our hope in Christ and what God has done is our motivation for love and good works to our neighbor. Um, And that's what we want to do in connection particularly with Lord's Day 32. Why must we do good works? And how do we understand good works as Paul is explaining it here? And of course what Paul does is say we need to keep the love of God for us in mind as we think about how we show thanksgiving to God by our good works as we seek to love our neighbors in excellent and profitable ways. And so Paul is talking to a preacher and he's saying this is how you're to bring this message to God's people. And so we can think about how he's going to bring this message. And Paul says, what are you to do? How are you to bring this to bear on the lives of God's people? And Paul says, you're to remind them of first the foundation established. Um, Everything that's come before is laying a foundation for what Paul is going to say. So first, we think about the foundation established, and then the fruit sought. Uh, What are we seeking, what is God seeking to produce in his people um, by these considerations? And finally, we're going to end with the focus needed. If we want to live lives of service to God and gratitude for what he's done, where does our focus need to be? And that's how we want to think about this passage tonight. The foundation established, the fruit sought, and the focus needed. Uh, The foundation established is so crucial for us moving forward. Uh, What Paul says and how he grounds these commands is so important for God's people. Because one of the fundamental teachings that we find from Paul and really throughout the whole New Testament is that Christ came not only to save lives, but to change them. Christ came not only to save us, but to change us, to make us different than we are when he finds us. And that's the glory of salvation as we consider it both from the aspect of justification, which is God's declaration of our righteousness, covering, declaration of righteousness, covering us over with what Christ has done. But then God also changes us from what we are into the image of his Son. That Jesus came not only to redeem, but also to renew, right? Not just to take us as he finds us, 
but to change us. And that's one of the really one of the great parts of the good news is that God has not saved us to leave us as we are. Uh, God has saved us from what we were in order to transform us into what He wants us to be, what He made us to be in the first place. Uh, people who are proper image bearers of God. And that's really the good news of the gospel. And that's what we've, we've seen in Titus as we've gone through, those, those twin purposes that God came to save, to justify, but also to sanctify. He came to redeem, He also came to renew. Uh, that's the good news. We're not like pigs that have been taken out of the sty from wallowing in our own mess and then left to try to figure out how do we clean ourselves up. Um, God does the whole work of transformation in the lives of his people, and that's very good news. Those who God redeems, he also renews. Those he justifies, he also sanctifies. And you see that connection when question 86 asked its first question about good works. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, right? There is the justification by grace alone, by the work of God alone, not on our merits, but on on Christ's merits. Since we have been delivered, why then should we do good works? How do we think of our works in light of that truth? And the answer begins because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit, into his image. We focus a lot on justification because people get that really wrong. And it's so important for our assurance to remind ourselves that we are right with God only because of what Jesus has done, only by God's grace, only through faith in him, not on account of anything we do. We stress that, but we don't ever want to separate that from the rest of what God does in salvation. It always should lead to us to a consideration of sanctification, uh, to see all of this as part and parcel of the saving work of God. One commentator said, to separate salvation and discipleship is to miss the full intention of God's saving plans. How can those who died to sin still live in it? There's a connection between our redemption and our renewal Another person said, good works are the necessary response by the believer to God's grace and mercy and are one of the reasons Christ came. When the goodness and loving kindness of our, of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not just from our sins, but for holiness. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel. And Paul continues to link salvation by grace and also sanctification in this logical order. And that's really what verse 8 is all about. Paul is building on the foundation that has been established. Right? Look at how he he says that in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Everything I've just said is trustworthy. What God has done for us in Christ. And I want you to insist on these things. Right? What, what is Titus to insist on? What, what are we to insist on as Christians? The good news of the gospel of free grace in Christ 
as the motivation for good works. The foundation is the faithful saying of of verses 3 through 7. The truth expounded of God's free grace and our rebirth by baptism through the Spirit. And Paul's telling Titus, keep continuing to teach these things. Teach them insistently. Teach them confidently. Don't shy away from free grace. Continue to insist on this foundation of a salvation that's built entirely on the work of a gracious God. I want you to insist on these things. Because what will an insistent preaching of these things produce? There's a, there's a so that. Insist on these things, Paul says, so that something happens. Because Paul knows the truth that's been revealed to him by Jesus Christ, that understanding grace inspires gratitude. Really understanding the greatness of the salvation that we have in God, that it is all of Him and none of us, is what will inspire us then to do good work. Right? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And in this, we have the answer to anyone who asks us, well, if you preach free grace, what room is there for good works? Have you ever had someone ask you that question? Right? If grace is so free, if God has done everything, then, then why would we do good works? Um, and, and Paul makes that connection so clearly here. Um, why would people ask that question? Well, I think there's an underlying assumption in that question. If someone asks, if you preach free grace, then what motivation is there for good works? I think that kind of reveals underlying assumptions. One assumption is that we will only do good work out of a fear of judgment. The only motivation to do good work was because I'm afraid if I don't, I'll enter into judgment. Um, And without that motivation, then what motivation would there be? Or I think another assumption is that that only duty would motivate us. Um, If you don't have a duty to do good work, if it's not earning you something, then what would be the motivation to do good work? If you preach free grace, doesn't that remove all fear of judgment? No longer depends on me? Um, If it's not my duty to do good work to earn something, then how do I understand my good work? You see the, the underlying assumptions that are there? And you see that Paul doesn't seem to be concerned with any of that? What does he say? Preach free grace, and what will motivate people to do good works is gratitude. The more you magnify what God has done, the more you preach the fullness of his salvation. The more reason there is for us to do good works out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might devote themselves to good works. Paul isn't talking just about faith generally when he says those who have believed in God. He's talking particularly about those who believed in the God who's described in the verses that just came before. 
The God who does these things for haters, for despicable kinds of people. It's really hard to read that description of ourselves, right? Um, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's not exactly the stuff to put on a church bulletin board, right? Come join the church. It's a bunch of people who live their lives in malice and envy, who hate everybody, and everybody hates them. Welcome, right? You'll fit right in. Um, no, I mean, that's, that's a terrible description of who we are. That's who we are, and God loved us. That's who we are, and God loved us. And out of His love, He redeemed us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. We were unlovely people. We were haters in every awful sense of that word. And what has God done? Out of his mercy, he has saved haters and turned them into heirs. Heirs according to hope. What a transformation to be taken from being an evil hater of God and others and to be made an heir of God. To take those who are hopeless in themselves and to bring them into a life of hope. Hope that doesn't rest on us or what we do, but rests entirely on the goodness and loving kindness and mercy of a God who's so filled with love that he can love people like us. It's that that will produce gratitude in his people. It's that that will inspire us to good works, to remind us that that's the God in whom we've believed. That's the God who's redeemed. As one person put it, those who have come to know God's love and kindness, His Spirit's renewing work, and His great salvation, how can they not be motivated to do what's pleasing to God? And to show just how great our God is, after establishing that foundation of salvation that's been established, then Paul goes on to say, and the reason God wants us to produce these works of gratitude is because they are good things. Right, so we move from the foundation established to the fruit sought. What is God seeking to produce in us? Why does God want us to be intent on His saving work and for that to produce a careful devotion to good works in our lives? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Right? Such is God's goodness. Why does He want us to produce the fruit of gratitude? Because He knows these things are excellent. He knows these things are profitable. They're excellent and profitable for people. Right? He doesn't get something from our good works. He doesn't want to produce work of gratitude in us because there's something he needs. He doesn't need it. 
Again, think about the goodness of our God. He saves us because of what's in Him to produce in us things that will be excellent and profitable for us. Excellent and profitable for the people around us. God wants these things produced in us because they are in themselves excellent. Um, This is a word that doesn't just mean good, but it's good in the sense of something that's beautiful. Something that's aesthetically pleasing. The way you would look at a Van Gogh painting and say, that's excellent. Um, Or hear a, a... a symphony and say, that's excellent. And if you hear it played by really good musicians, that's not just an excellent piece of music. It's excellently done. It's beautiful. It's wonderful in and of itself. And that's what Paul is saying good works are. The good works we're called to do, the good works we produce, they are excellent things in and of themselves. And why are they excellent? From from where do they draw their excellence? Because they are reflections of God's will. These things are excellent. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. These are the commands that come to God's people. Submissive to proper authority. Obedient. Ready to do good. Speaking no evil. Gentle, peaceable, and courteous. Brothers and sisters, are those not excellent things? Are those not wonderful things? Wouldn't we love to be these kinds of people and to be surrounded with these kinds of people? Isn't our world crying out for courtesy and and a generosity of spirit? An unwillingness to speak evil? You see how these things are excellent? These things are beautiful? That's what God wants to produce in us. They are themselves excellent, and God knows they are profitable. Right? They're useful. They're beneficial. And the catechism is so helpful in Lord's Day 32 because it helps give voice to how these things are useful. Um. Let's take question 86 in in the reverse order of the list of things that are useful about good works, right? They're excellent and profitable for all people, particularly for our neighbors, right? Why do we do good works for our neighbors so that by our godly living, our neighbors might be won over to Christ? That certainly is an excellent and profitable reason to do good works, one of the ways in which they are excellent and profitable, is that they draw people to God. Another way of saying this is that by our godly living, we may be encouraged to be, the people may be encouraged to believe on Christ and thus become children of God. When they see those excellent and profitable things in us, it will make them want to understand where does that come from? Right? It's one of the products of good works that when people see that, they say, Where does that come from? Why are you courteous when so much of the world isn't? Why are you gentle when so much of the world isn't? 
Why are you not speaking evil when so much of the world is? What, what is? what is doing that? That that might attract them to why we do what we do. That's one of the things the Word comes back to again and again about good works. You can think of Romans 14, 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Acceptable to God and approved by men. Even people who don't believe see that there's something good about people who are righteous and filled with peace and filled with joy. And there's the motivation then. So let us, Paul goes on to say, let us then pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. They're excellent. They're profitable. Think of what Peter tells wives with ungodly husbands in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Right? One over without a word. What a beautiful thing. Why? Because it's a profitable thing. It's an excellent thing. And one more example I think will suffice from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. When Matthew five fourteen to 16, when he says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a, light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, There's a, a glory that they see, a light that they see in us. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Um, and not, you know, the catechism has in mind our unbelieving neighbors, um, but there's also a sense in which this has a, an excellent and profitable use for those who have believed in the Word of God. They too can see our good deeds and be encouraged. One commentator said, those who have already been won to Christ may be kept from falling away and may be preserved and built up more and more. That's what the Lord told Peter about when he said in Luke 22, 31, and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We can strengthen everyone by our good works as well. Good works are profitable for all people. They're profitable for those who are around us, and they're profitable for us as well. Right? What is the excellent and profitable use of good works in the life of the believer? Well, the Catechism says, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruit. Good works are excellent and profitable for God's people because they are proof to us that we are indeed being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And we can work our way back down the line. If here I see the fruit of the work of the redeeming, of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in my life, then I can know that the redeeming work of God is present in my life and I can know the truth of it by its fruit. I can grow an assurance of faith when I see the fruit that's being produced in my life by the work of the Spirit. 
And that's so important for believers because there's so much in our lives that can only be known. We can only see the reality by its fruit. Right? You could go real deep down a well of uncertainty if you tried to figure out if you were regenerated or elected. Am I one of the elect? Am I regenerate? How can you know those things? You only can know those things by the fruit of election and regeneration. What is the proof of election? What is the proof of regeneration in the life of God's people? True faith, repentance, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. By those fruit, you know the reality of what you have. How do you know the state of the heart? Well, we're told by the fruit. Jesus was very clear about that. Said in Luke six forty three to forty five, no tree bears bad, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. Uh, How do we know if we have true faith? One of the ways we can be assured of that is by its fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? You probably can all say it with me. This is the Sunday night crowd, the really the select of the elect, right? You, you know these things. These are, these are really probably very clear in your mind, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, f- faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And why does God give these things to us in this way? Um, all those passages, you can turn them in a way that robs you of assurance, But Scripture doesn't give them to us to rob us of assurance, but to give us assurance. It doesn't say these things to make us uneasy or to doubt our confidence. They're meant to show the excellent and profitable work that God is doing in us. The fruits are obvious, right? If you see apples on a tree, what kind of tree is it? It's late, I know. It's an apple tree, right? You don't see big lemons hanging on a tree and say, boy, I wonder what kind of tree that is. You know, even if you know nothing about trees, you know by seeing what the fruit that's hanging there. It's meant to be an open, obvious thing. If you see the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life, the Spirit's at work in that person's life. Now again, there's a way to take what is meant to be an encouragement and make it discouraging. Um, We're good at doing that. To say, well, there's some love, but surely this love is not what God is looking for. There's some peacefulness, but surely this is not the peaceableness that God produces. It's it's a kind of pathetic sort of peaceableness. You know, that's a different thing than saying there's no love. There's no peace. There's no kindness. And really, God's word comes to us, you know, if there's none of any of these things, then you should be worried about the state of your life. But if it's that you see these things and they're just not as as good as you'd like to see them, 
What is that really evidence of? It's evidence that you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then you should rejoice, Christian, because Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be satisfied. Um, We can be assured of our faith by its fruits. That's one of the excellent and profitable uses of good works. And we focused on the second things, the secondary things that the catechism gets to. Um, And now we need to return to the to the first and primary thing the catechism points us to, which is really the focus that's needed in the Christian life. There are benefits to others, there are benefits to ourselves in doing good works, but what is the focus that we really need to have about why these these works are excellent and profitable? It's because they show our thankfulness to God and His name is praised through us when we do them. So that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. The wonderful truth of Scripture is that when we do what is right, when we do what is good, when we do what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord, we are doing what we were created to do. We are reflecting his image in the world. That's the way we say thank you to God. The more we think about the greatness of the grace and the deliverance that is ours in Christ, the more that should drive us to say, how can I say thank you to this great God? Right, to make the question of our lives, the question of Psalm 116, 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? Right, that's what will help us in these things. I like how one commentator put it. The believer conscious of these infinite and inestimable blessings asks, what shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits towards me? The salvation has been all of grace. For Christ's sake, without any merit of ours, and for the same reason, nothing that we can do for God can in any degree be a repayment of His kindness. God who has given us all needs not anything at our hands. Still, and so much the more the believer is ardently desirous of testifying his thankfulness by more than feeling or words. What then will be most acceptable to God? What is it he most delights to see in his children? With what is he most pleased in his son as our surety and for the sake of which he has given us all these blessings? It is obedience. The honor done his holy law, the reflection of his holiness in the life of his servants. This then is the thank offering we render to him. Our whole conduct is to testify by its submission to his will and the doing of his commandments how strong, stronger than any other motive is our sense of his loving kindness. Isn't that wonderful? We're impressed with this sense of what we've been given, and we say to ourselves, how can I say thank you to God? What is the thing he loves the most? And we look to Jesus and say, what made God say, look, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. What was it about him? He did his father's will. He loved his father 
with his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength, and he loved his neighbor more than he loved himself. And God looked at those excellent and profitable things in the life of his son and said, this is what pleases me. And when we as God's people think on what he's done for us, our question should be, what can I do that will really please my Father in heaven? What is it that will really make him smile? How can I best say thank you for all these benefits to him? It's really by our obedience. That's why Scripture comes back again and again to appeal to the mercy of God as the motivation for following him. Paul does that in Romans 12.1. We often think about that as a, as a verse about commitment to the will of God. But where does Paul start? He says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He doesn't start with duty. He doesn't start with a fear of judgment. He starts with an appeal to mercy. By the mercies of God, show him you're thankful. Our good works are the way we say thank thank you to God for what he has done in our lives. And our good works not only will show that we're thankful to God, they glorify his name. They cause him to be praised when that work is seen in us. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What do we want to use the lives that we've been given These lives that have been recreated in Jesus Christ, what do we want to use them for? We want to use them to say thank you to God, and we want to use them so that God is glorified. How is God glorified in the life of His servants? When we live according to His word, and we reflect His holiness in the world. I love how that commentator I read the long quote from says, that that thanksgiving, that good work is honor done to his holy law and the reflection of his holiness in the life of his servants. We get to reflect a light that's not our own. We're reflecting a light, but we're not the light. We just have the privilege of reflecting it. Um, John Stott, building on this idea, said, People will see us and our good works, and seeing us will glorify God. For they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are, that our light is His light, and that our works are His works done in us and through us. So it is the light they will praise and not the lamp which bears it. It is our Father in heaven whom they will glorify, not the children he has begotten and who exhibit a certain family likeness. Even those who revile us may not be able to help glorifying God for the very righteousness on account of which they persecute us. That's what we want, right? To reflect his light, not so that people see us as a lamp and say, what great lamps. So we see we're only bearing his light and so they say, what great light. What great glory the Father has. Have you ever walked outside on a, on a full moon evening 
and sort of been marveled, sort of marvel at how light it is outside. That you go out and say, wow, it's really bright out for, for night because this full moon is really shining. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. It's only reflecting light. The full moon is so bright because it's reflecting fully the light. But what that should cause us to meditate and say, you know, if the reflected light of the sun is that bright, that can even light up the night, how much more is the full glory of the light of the sun? A light so bright you can't look at it. It's the same thing we're trying to do in the world, to reflect that light. So people will look at us and say, we're like the moon, we're cold dead rocks in and of ourselves, but where does that light come from? It's not our light. And if they see that light shining out from us, they, they, we want them to say, then how great is the light that's shining in them, that it reflects that way in the world? You see how our good work then becomes a way of us reflecting the light of our Father and doing what we were made to do, which would, is image bearers, right? To, to bear His image in the world and to show forth the light of His holiness. That's a wonderful privilege of what God's people are called to in the world. And one of, the, one of the wonderful realities that Scripture teaches us about our light shining in the world. You see it in the Old Testament and you see it in the New Testament. Just a couple examples before we close. Daniel 12, 3, we read, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Or Philippians 2:15 where the call is to shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. What a glory that God is working in us, not just to save us, but to renew us so that we might properly be reflectors again of His glory like we were made to be. And we can live this life in the promise that there's a day coming when that work of renewal will be done. Right? We're works in progress now. We're still in process in sanctification. We'll confess a little later in the catechism that we only have the beginnings of good works in this life. Um, and sometimes we want to be like the full moon shining, and sometimes we're like the very new moon, a little sliver shining. As one person once said, and even when we shine, the full light of the moon is shining, you see all the craters and the imperfections on the moon. But there's a day coming when we will be renewed. When we will, that work of sanctification will be finished and we will be the reflectors of God's glory that we were made to be. That we will be like Jesus in glory. Perfectly reflecting the glory of our Father in heaven. And then we will glorify Him in our lives and have an eternity to thank Him for doing this great work in people who'd lived their lives in malice and envy, hating one another and being hated by others. He's turned into heirs according to His hope and lights that shine and reflect His glory forever. What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful reason to devote ourselves to doing good so that we might glorify our Father 
who's in heaven. To him be the glory and the gratitude forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, continue to impress upon our hearts the trustworthiness and the excellence of these things that you've taught us about what you have done for us. And may those things impressed on us and insistently taught to us as we preach from the pulpit and as we preach the gospel to ourselves as we study your word, that we might continually remind ourselves of these things so that we may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. To be reminded that they are excellent and profitable for all people around us and for ourselves and ultimately wonderful for the purpose of showing forth our thanksgiving to you for what you've done for us in Christ and also that you've given us the privilege of bringing glory to your name. Father, we desire for your name to be hallowed. And we pray that you would help us to live lives of service to you that they might, the people might see our good deeds and glorify your name. Help us in these things to be devoted to the things that are pleasing in your sight. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.